This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave. You're listening to 3RRR 102.7 FM. This is a film criticism show brought to you by myself. My name is Thomas Cordwell and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Cerise Howard and Alexandra Heller. Nicholas, good evening to you both. Hi, guys. Good evening to you both. We've got a really curious show tonight. I think we're going to, as per usual, we're going to be discussing three films and I think they're all sort of films from the dark side of life. We're going to go existential, we're going to go cruel, we're going to go droll, we're going to go revenge fantasy i couldn't be happier we're going to start off with a pigeon sat on a branch reflecting on existence a droll comedic uh, series of musings on misery death and atrocities from the past in the latest film by swedish filmmaker roy anderson and it's very funny then we're going to take a look at The Dressmaker, the new film by Australian filmmaker Jocelyn Morehouse. It stars Kate Winslet as the titular dressmaker who has arrived back in the small town she grew up in to face the events and the people who once drove her away. And then right at the end of the show, we'll take a look at Love. It is a bit about love, and it's a lot about sex. Explicitly so in 3D that explodes right off the screen towards your face. <laughs> Of course, it is the new film by Argentinian provocateur Gaspar Noé. But Cerise, I know you have been so excited about this film. Let's kick off with a pigeon sat on a branch reflecting on existence. The final part of a trilogy about being a human being. From the uh, pretty inimitable, extremely distinctive Roy Anderson, uh, Sweden's finest, uh, drollest, darkest auteur of the miserable and appalling and hilarious he doesn't make films often this is the third since 2000 this trilogy has taken him 15 years to get through he subsidizes his filmmaking with commercial work such that when he makes his films he makes them exactly to his specifications there is no compromise and his films are like Nobody others though that said i will throw a few other names into the ring yet because i think he has a couple of contemporaries but what he's concerned about is the the basically miserable nature of human existence, not least because we haven't uh, made our peace with some of the darker things we have done in the past. And by we, we're especially talking about white people and very particularly Swedish, but we could, I think, extend that to much of Europe. This film, like all his others, is a series of tableaux, or tableau vivants, if you like, though they're not always very vivant. There are... <laughs> Everyone in his films looks dead or, or worse. Um, they're either extremely pale and sickly or actually more or less uh, sort of chalky and corpse-like. And many of them are barely any more animated than that description suggests either. He stages these uh, sequen- these uh, tableau, uh, many of them just very long shots, a single shot, scarcely any camera movement. I think the camera may have budged once in this film. Film. I think there's a total of one very slight pan. <laughs> yeah, it's very, very <laughs> Settle down, Anderson, yeah. settle down. Yeah. <laughs> and with amazing depth of field as well, so that you, you can really enjoy every little detail. Um, often there is something going on right in the background. And some of the characters directly address the camera. And characters, well, I mean, these are largely non-professional actors, many of whom aren't exactly being asked to uh, act in any sort of broad-ranging sort of way. Some of them recur from scene to scene, uh, especially to salesmen of rather 
unexciting novelties who are evidently extremely depressed and also very bad at being uh, salesmen of things that are supposed to uh, enliven others' lives and clearly aren't enlivening theirs any. As somebody who used to work in sales, I love these two. <laughs> yeah. They felt like kindred spirits. Yeah, yeah. one of them's on the brink of tears all the time, uh, very Stan Laurel. Um, yep. They're, they're a great little double act. They quarrel. They, they live in a very depressing environment as well. Where so they seem to spend an awful lot of time together. They're just a few doors from one another in a, a, a very dreary dormitory. So this film seems to be set in the present day, except there are a huge array of anachronisms and maybe it moves in time a little bit. Um, certainly, uh, Charles XII, uh, an 18th century <laughs> ruler of Sweden, materialises in a contemporary Gothenburg pub um, en route to uh, a devastating defeat at the hands of, I think, Peter the Great, uh, the Russian leader of the time. And we might look to him as being some sort of a symbol of Sweden's decline. Uh, Sweden was a great power once, and as we are reminded in extremely devastating fashion at the end of this film, uh, part of its basis as a great power was dreadful things done to other people in particular, and little known, uh, done to African people. Uh, we're invited throughout this film to laugh at people's misery. Um, it is hard not to because these, these sequences are extremely Bunwellian and Pythonesque, um, and, and not unlike Rene Magritte paintings brought to life if, with all the light leached out of them and everything's just green and sickly looking. But uh, ultimately we're all being set up for two scenes at the very end of this film of incredible power. And uh, which just are not very funny uh, at all, um, and uh, just just really to to put the the boot in and remind us that as human beings we've we may have come a long way, but really we are base and awful and despicable, and we really shouldn't be allowed to forget it. Those scenes are astonishing at the end. I mean, this is, this is only the second Anderson film I've seen after seeing You the Living, and and this film carries on very much in the same style as You the Living. So I did not anticipate those two climactic scenes and and they're not explicitly violent as such well you know one is the, the poor animal involved but but the, the second one which is even more alarming is not actually a violent sequence it's just very clear what is happening in the scene and it's it's quite horrifying and he makes a really potent message that the suffering of the people depicted in this scene is being done for the entertainment of another set of people and it's creating a kind of it's creating pleasure and beauty from the suffering and torment of these other people. And, you know, the, the, the metaphor in this scene, it's not difficult to decode, but it's really, really powerful, potent stuff about how, you know, many of many civilizations and countries like Sweden enjoy a, a set of privilege and comfort and happiness because of a horrible cruelty that's been inflicted on other people. I mean, that's this colonialist, anti-imperialist idea that that's... That's in this film. Really powerful, powerful uh, uh, stuff. But um, it somehow still works, I think, with all these other sequences of everyday banality, misery, and uber, uber droll humour. I mean, yeah, I love those two salesmen. They kind of remind me of live-action Ernie and Bert, if Ernie and Bert were utterly <laughs> depressed and <laughs> suicidal. That is a perfect description. That just came to me then. It kind of works, doesn't struck it? struck by critical <laughs> genius. That's lovely. Um, but, yeah, look like you. I loved it. And it's, it's, it's been... It's really fun trying to explain to people what exactly to expect from this sort of film. I mean, I, I thought of Bunuel as well. I thought of Monty Python. I've heard people reference Jacques Tati, which certainly I think in the staging of some of the sequences, it's very Jacques Tati-esque, especially those scenes where you're not actually too sure what bit of the frame to look at. There's actually sometimes multiple 
mini stories happening in the same uh, the same frame. Uh, there's a bit of Federico Fellini in here. I've heard people describe this film as containing the spirits of Samuel Beckett and Spike Milligan. <laughs> Igmar Bergman has been referenced. I mean, I hope all, all these names I've just mentioned. Gary Larson's another one I've heard mentioned. The Far Side yeah. oh, cartoonist. Perfect. Yeah. Definitely. I hope this is this is kind of setting off sparks of interest and intrigue from people because it's an extraordinary work. What um, I mean, I, I'm I'm hesitant to to kind of lump Scandinavian directors together, but your Burton Ernie comparison, they, they were my favourite characters too. The the two salesmen, they they were like Ernie and Bert done by Aki Karasmaki for me. And I'm a hu- I know that you guys are split on Karasmaki, but I'm a huge Karasmaki fan. This film isn't a Karasmaki film in any sense, sense, but I think that those two characters in particular, there's a whole bunch of Aki going on there, <laughs> and that the Ernie and Bert is kind of the other. <laughs> The other side to that equation. Cerise, you mentioned Magritte, and for me, and Thomas, the way that you were describing how the kind of climactic, quite violent action takes place in this film, I think that this painterly stillness, this kind of sense of slowness and stillness is really deceptive in this film, and I think it is very consciously painterly. The title of the film, A Pigeon Sat on a Branch Reflecting on Existence, is a reference to the 1565 painting The Hunters in the Snow by Peter Bruegel the Elder, which is, um, I'm just going to drop this in, also referenced in Dario Argento's The Bird with Crystal Plumage. I'm not going to dwell on that. We'll just keep moving on. You, you know a bit about Argento, don't you? Oh, a little bit. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> just like dropping that in there every now and then. Um <laughs> Peter, when I found the Peter Bruegel connection, it's like that's exactly what this feels like to me. I don't know whether you guys are familiar with Bruegel's yeah. paintings, but it's lots of action taking place in what initially looks like quite a still space. And then the more that you focus on these little um, these little sort of epicenters, these just these tiny little epicenters of drama just explode out of the canvas at you. It's a Bruegel, I mean, it's a Bruegel painting. I think we're really uh, given a, a little bit of forewarning. Uh, the very opening scene where we see this extremely dreary chap staring into cabinets in a museum <laughs> full of taxidermied yes, animals. And this is how we're being invited to scrutinise this whole film, I would suggest. Dead, sort of dead objects made to appear lifelike. Yeah, <laughs> be- barely, barely <laughs> lifelike. And, and also to, to little impact upon the viewer. You know, this, this is totally impassive and other people are just milling around in the background in that too. As you suggest, there's, uh, there are, Thomas, yes, these various levels of depth to the image and there are people just milling around, moving, or actually scarcely moving. Oh, barely breathing. Barely breathing. Yeah, so much deep focus as well. Like I think mm. all these shots are, are very much in focus. And I mean, they really are immaculate constructions, each shot in this film. I mean, it, it, I, I started to, to almost break it down in terms of its geometry. I mean, the lines are so perfect and precise in this film. Even though it's often representing depression and, and decay and misery, it is just so perfectly pieced together. Uh, on that note, there's a wonderful scene where a girl is invited to, uh, to recite a poem and rather than recite it, she winds up describing it and, that, and is congratulated <laughs> on, having, on having delivered such a wonderful poem. And just this idea that poetry can no longer really be... Um, Not enough. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, really, just the description is sufficient. No one's going to be moved <laughs> anyway. It's just, uh, just going through the motions. I actually found that, that scene perhaps the most depressing in the entire film. And that's saying something. There's a lot in here to be depressed about in a, a very witty way. There are moments of of joy, though, kind of peppered in this film. I mean, they are there, a bit like, you know, his previous film. I mean, there is one sequence where you just see various couples just hanging out together, not doing much. There's a scene where, you know, a woman just giggles at her baby in the pram and you're kind of waiting for something horrible to happen to her. I love those moments. I know there's a quite early in the film, there's a tap dancing sequence, of course. Yes. um, And you don't 
you don't expect that. It is that you're sort of sitting there waiting, you know, how is he going to subvert this tap dancing sweet sequence? And it's that sense of waiting, yep. that sense of dread that sometimes sometimes happens, sometimes doesn't. And it almost feels like it's a, like a kind of random it's, it's very random to filter all these mm-hmm. scenes, isn't it? You don't know which ones are going to have punchlines, which ones are going to end, end badly, and which ones, and there's a few of them, which are just nice moments. And how long certain scenes are going to be strung out for, like uh, this uh, flamenco teacher who's molesting one of her her charges, and it just it just goes on and on. And oh, the, the Charles the Twelfth uh, scene where you yes, just got that endless stream of horses going <laughs> yes. past the pub, and it's I mean I don't know how they pulled that off, whether they just got the horses circling the studio, yeah. but it's 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 a magnificent set piece. Yeah, the um, one other contemporary filmmaker his work most fine uh, reminds me of I thought I'd mention is Ilya Suleiman, this Palestinian filmmaker who has this very similar deadpan sensibility and as is as politically engaged probably more so even than Anderson and in as much as he's very much concerned with contemporary issues surrounding the occupation of Palestine and he appears in all his films himself as this mute uh, witness to uh, absurd horrors being routinely perpetrated and there's I think th- these two filmmakers are, are of a of a kind and if, if we look through more of Anderson's back catalogue and uh, you living in songs from the second floor especially hone in on atrocities that the Swedes have have um, been a party to not that long ago especially in World War Two era there's no shortage of gags there about Swedish uh, complicity in Nazi horrors and there are some extraordinary short works he's made too which I would urge people to hunt down I think on some DVD editions of his films you can find uh, an educational film Anderson was committed to make about AIDS for the Swedish National Board of Health and Welfare, which was withdrawn promptly <laughs> and not completed uh, from 1987. And it has the same aesthetic as these later feature films and some extraordinarily brutal imagery. Uh, it is extremely distressing, as is World of Glory, uh, an extremely ironic title, a short from 1992, which begins with a character staring blank down the barrel of the cameras some do in this film too uh whilst people are herded up naked into a truck the truck doors are closed shut and then the entire truck is gassed while it just sort of does little laps in the background and the camera doesn't flinch and it's just it's just not funny and yet um and yet here we are are. i mean this film starts off with a little trilogy of short sequences where people die yeah and one is just a man falling over trying to open a wine bottle as a heart attack and it's it's kind of funny i honestly (laughs) thought is this whole film going to be just people dropping dead because this is brilliant Oh, the, the one with the, the man who died just after ordering lunch and then they're not too sure what to do with his lunch and they just ask the crowd, does anybody want a free beer or a free shrimp salad? And just the way it plays out, so droll, so deadpan. It's it's really finely comedic work going on in this film among all this extraordinary metaphor. Yeah, it is. But I think there's also a lot of dialogue between all of his films, the short work and these later features and this dreadful thing that happens to an animal that we've alluded mm. to definitely harkens back to world of glory um and something has happened too especially something has happened where the myths surrounding the advent of aids you could um easily tie this in with this scene in a pigeon sat on a branch reflecting on existence so uh acme are screening those two other features it's a shame they've not thrown the shorts in the package as well 
Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming it's an, an access issue, but yeah. So they're, they're, they're showing the entire Living trilogy. Mm. So Songs from the Second Floor, which is a 2000 film, You the Living, which is 2007, and then this new one, A Pigeon Sat on a Branch, reflecting on existence. They started screening it last Thursday. I think it's got about goes until mid November. Yeah. So um, it's a limited season. One well worth tracking down. I, I think you get the impression from what we're all saying. This is one worth seeking. Yeah, even if the Swedish tourist board might rather none of his films <laughs> existed. <laughs> Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. That was Lanny Lane with the track Bang Bang, which appears in the film The Dressmaker. In fact, Lanny Lane appears as herself performing that song in The Dressmaker, which was quite a treat. We're going to take a closer look at that film right now. Alex? Well, I went in quite cold to this film not not against it um but certainly not not for it um which i think in a way is always a, a good way to see a film you kind of you know have a blank i'm a huge jocelyn morehouse fan um big fan of proof in particular um but i really didn't know what to expect um and i was uh comforted within the first few moments by kate winslet's amazing australian accent um the film follows winslet uh, Winslet's character, she, she returns to a country town um, in Victoria uh, after some time overseas, uh, being a dress designer, the dressmaker of the title. She's been in Paris and she's returning to sort out unfinished business with her mother, who's played by the remarkable Judy Davis, um, and just to basically put some old ghosts to rest, um, some nastiness from her childhood needs sorting out. So she's, you know, skeletons are in the cupboard, the closet even. There's some nice, um, some revealing things that come out to, to be explored and discussed um, upon her return. The, the plot, in a way, does not do justice to the magic that this film is. I saw this at a matinee um, in a suburban cinema and... I, something that I don't see very often is that the film got a standing ovation. I'm used to this happening in at film festivals, that sort of things, you know, pre, pre, uh, premiere screenings. This was absolutely lovely. The the crowd were, um, the audience were probably substantially older than I was, and I got the feeling from a lot of the moments in this film that got laughs um, that people were remembering. And, and even there were moments in this film, there's one sequence where Judy Davis and Kate Winslet are, are making a, a dress together and Judy Davis's character as her mother starts sort of reprimanding her and telling her where to put pins and that her seams aren't straight. And I had these sort of flashbacks to my grandmother and my mother when I was a child, this kind of this sense of ritual, of this kind of women's ritual is so rich um, and really explored in such a diverse way in this film. It's very much a, a women's film in, in a number of ways um, that, that I found absolutely charming. Um, it's, it's kind of a... I mean, it's an Australian Gothic film and a very dark, very funny one. Um, with with a real feminist twist to it, I, I, I don't think that can be really um, underplayed to what makes this film so interesting. I, I can't express what joy I got from seeing the the women who made up this cast. So we've talked about Judy Davis, uh, Kate Winslet, of course, puts in a, a remarkable performance. But the supporting cast is like a who's who of Australian women's performers from the last couple of 
decades. There's really remarkable people. Rebecca Gibney, Sarah Snook. Sarah Snook is incredible in this film. Um, Carolyn Goodall, Kerry Fox, who is from New Zealand. Uh, Julia Blake, Tracy Harvey. Alison White put in a great performance that um, it, I, I didn't quite pick Alison White when I saw her. And then when I clicked who it was, it was just so exciting. And of course, as I said, Judy Davis. I think this is as much Judy Davis's film as it is... Um, as it is Kate's, Kate Winslet's. She's hilarious. I hadn't seen Judy in anything recently. Do we know what her last film was? I, it's been a while. Hang on, I'll, I'll quickly look it up. Keep talking. I mean, she certainly made up to look as haggard as possible uh, throughout the film. Um, but it really did remind me I hadn't seen her in ages. And she is in ripping good form. She's chewing up the scenery like no nobody's business. Mind you, um, many of the other uh, cast members have pitched their performance at Philly in, in, in a pretty grotesque register too there, there is a, it is such a peculiar and um, mm, uh, overcooked hybrid this film there is that Australian gothic element undoubtedly but then elements of melodrama and extremely broad comedy it's, mm. uh, and unmistakably Australian uh, there's no it, it's playing to the galleries very much but also very much to Australian galleries I don't know how this film will travel I like to think uh, there's an audience for this overseas, but it, to me it seems so distinctly Australian and I really actually relish that fact. Um, Thomas? I completely agree. Yeah. Just quickly, uh, Judy Davis, this is the first film she's done in a couple of years. So yeah. In 2013 she was in the young and prodigious T.S. Spivett, which was a... Oh, what's his name? The delicatessen guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, Emily guy. Yeah. Not Caro, the other one. The other Jeunet. one. Jeunet. 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 That's, that's terrible. Yeah. And he was in, uh, mm. she was in To Rome With Love before that, the Woody Allen film. And then The Eye of the Storm in 2011 was her last Australian film. Yeah, yeah she's amazing. She knocks it out of the park. Everybody in this film does. I, I, I love this. I, mm. And I think what is so good about this is how well Morehouse manages the radical tonal shifts. I mean, it is that kind of grotesque Australian comedy. And I... I wasn't surprised when I saw in the credits that PJ Hogan, and I didn't realise that he was married to Jocelyn yeah. Morehouse, mm. he was also one of the, the script writers. So, you know, PJ Hogan, of course, who is still probably best known for Muriel's Wedding, where he kind of perfected that kind of grotesque Australian comedy. There's a little bit of that in there but it's sort of balanced with this yeah this intense gothic romance i mean this house that the, um that the winslet character and the davis character live in is it reminded me of edward scissorhands house up on the hill that you know looks down upon the town and the town look up at in in dread there's a real western aesthetic in this film yeah, as definitely. well yeah Absolutely. i mean when she arrives it's, it's that kind of morricone music and she lights a cigarette and then when her rival arrives it's also sort of like the, the villain arriving and and instead of exchanging bullets in this film they're exchanging dresses and i i, I adored that um and i think this is a really potent example of what we're seeing starting to see more and more of in cinema which is the complete inverse of the male gaze i think this is a very feminine a very female gaze rather so that very consciously i, I agree very with liam hemsworth i i, um, I know very at. i know yeah. very little about liam hemsworth um as a performer and he understood that very well. I was so impressed with his understanding of his role. The way that, um, I mean, Morehouse is a visual, a really great visual stylist, but the way that she took command of this female gaze and the way that he understood that that's what he was performing absolutely blew me away. Yeah, well, he, that, there's one scene in particular with him which is really sexy and playful and fun. It actually reminded me a little bit of Magic Mike XXL. I mean, that entire film is all about the female gaze and sort of enjoying looking at men and, and men being 
you know, being happy to act as the pleasure provider. It's, it's, it's not a direct inverse of the male gaze. It's, you know, because our sexual politics and gender politics are so much more complicated. And I think this film understands the complication. Because what you also get with all the female characters is them owning the power of their appearance. And a lot of them, a lot of this film is about these women taking these clothes, having them designed to best accentuate their individual features and then being enormously powerful for that. And there is a scene that I'm sure is a direct reference to the classic Rita Hayworth film, Gilda. And the, the dress is the same, I'm sure. There's the a pout's moment, the same. The pout's yeah. the same. You say the pout? The pout. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it's this it's stunning black gown. It's shoulderless. It's got these long black gloves. And there's a very famous scene in Gilda where Rita Hayworth slowly strips off the gloves and looks like she's going to strip off the dress. And it completely renders all the men in the film absolutely useless and pathetic. <laughs> like, she has the power of being looked at. And Kate Winslet reenacts that moment in a key scene in this film which and that was the moment i, I was almost on my feet applauding mm-hmm. the cinema saying you've got me i'm on side beautiful work that's really early too and then yeah. uh hugo weaving as a, a cop harboring fabulous a, and he's gorgeous uh, no, he's lovely yeah. yeah and that's there's definitely riffing off priscilla in very his, consciously yeah very very consciously and he, he's so much fun in this film but like uh, everyone in this town they've, they've all got their secrets and many of them quite horrible and even as, as tiny as this little place is this little 1950s village where the, the station hotel as new arrival and evil uh, dressmaker una observes it's not actually anywhere near the station but this, this tiny town is not so tiny that it can't even have its own slum it's really interesting this this little um uh, look at an urban environment and, uh, in macro, you could say. And our friend Liam Hemsworth, there is one of the slum dwellers. He's off uh, sort of um, you know, the rest of the town turn their nose down at him, no, up, down, which is the proverb. Uh, they the turn their nose up, up at him. Up at him, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, look but, down their nose at him. But there's so many, yes, exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah, there's so many rivalries and many of them bitter and many of them related to dark, dark secrets. And there's uh, Shane Bourne, who's normally cast as a likeable knockabout sort of fellow, is a He's a nasty piece of work in this, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, I think that he's really well cut. I think there's a lot going on in this film about um, ritual and memory. And one Hmm. of the things I think that's so glaring about this film is just how damned white it is. But I, I, I think that's very conscious. I think that it's very deliberately showing how archaic this image of Australia is. And it's, there's almost like a kind of um, Wolf Creek subverting of the Paul Hogan, Crocodile Dundee figure going on with with that particular character in that, that this is the lovable larrikin and suddenly he's not lovable anymore. Suddenly we see him in, in a really dark light. The guy that we know to be the lovable character really is, is quite aggressively subverted. And Barry Otto is the other much-loved male character actor in this who plays a really nasty person who... It, it's only referenced sort of in passing in the film, but, you know, he, he when he was a younger, far more fit man, he was not a nice person at all, and again, that, yeah, that, that similar level of subversion—it's playing on our co- collective cultural memory of a lot of these actors, and the way it's been that they've been cast in this film is really strategic and clever. And the way that male violence is constructed here is not funny. It's actually some of the the very yeah. rare moments that there's no comedy attached to it. It's um, it's when you start unpacking these sort of smaller details, it's it's well, such a beautifully oiled machine that that Morehouse has really got here. And it's not a film where you have to watch a whole heap of male violence. In fact, I don't think you see anything too explicit, but it's. It's embedded within this whole town. In fact, the source of many of the deepest, darkest secrets come from men abusing or repressing women. I mean, it's it's a really potent work. Yeah, and it winds up something of a revenge thriller as well. There are so many, I like them. Yeah, so many genres woven into this. Uh, I, yeah, I think it's a really extraordinary film. I got a lot more than I 
bargain for. I, Absolutely. Um, it's one of my... I mean, it really is one of my big film surprises of the year. I haven't at all seen any trailers for this, so I don't know how they're pitching it, how they're marketing it, other than a poster I've seen which gives no hint at all of just... Kate Winslet uh, is... She makes yeah. dresses. Yeah, that's what that, I knew that's going That's what in. I drew, drew from that as well. I was surprised yeah. at how dark it was. And Me too. It, it, and, and, and that's the genius of Morehouse's di- direction, just how she oscillates between the high camp comedy and serious, very dark, traumatic moments. I mean, it's, it's really skillful work. I have seen the trailer. The trailer mainly focuses on all the zingers, all the good one-liners. It's a fun trailer, but I think it... I almost wish I hadn't seen it because I sort of saw some of the lines coming in the film, but I still bellowed with laughter at some of these really good lines. So, yeah, or know. just some great slapstick. There's one There's absolutely slapstick. hilarious uh, bit of slapstick too. Um, yeah, at least one. And how about that opening sequence? There's this extraordinary overhead. It, it, it reminded me of Wake and Fright. Yes, just for that I sense the same of, thing. Yeah, putting you really in the middle of nowhere, giving you a sense of someone's going to somewhere where there is nothing. And they're going to, as soon as they get there, find themselves out of their depth. And that's not quite the case, but we're, we're certainly planted in a, a terrifying environment. And the contrast between the person who's about to engage with that environment and the environment itself couldn't be starker. No, little do we know that she's actually going to be able to look after herself pretty well, but still. I think the Waking yeah. Fright reference was deliberate. I think, yeah, it, I think it, so it does too. have that it's, series of going into the, the dark heart of Australian culture and taking it on. Uh, the other film I kind of thought of with this was Mystery Road because you've got a similar setup, which is somebody who has returned to this township. They've kind of left on very unhappy terms. And because of, in Mystery Road, it's because of race but he's something of an outsider in this town and, you know, he sort of starts to uncover all the nastiness and corruption in the town. I mean, that's sort of what happens in this film as well. The Australian Gothic thing, I think, can't really be underplayed and you get that in the first 10 minutes, I think it's really set up. Just things like the, you know, especially with Wake and Fright, the way that the trees, the, the silhouettes that you see of trees, it's, you know, with crows sitting on them and the, the water tank at, at the, in the schoolyard, you know, things like the, the images like that, they're just so richly and so consciously this this very specific kind of Australian gothic, just beautiful. And there's reference points, it's from old Hollywood too, not least Sunset Boulevard. Yeah, That's, yeah. That might be my favourite yeah. scene. I want I want That's Judy hysterical. Davis to do a full commentary yeah. of, of Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> that would be my dream. Kickstarter, Kickstarter for Judy Davis to do a commentary of... Sunset Boulevard, please. The dressmaker took us all completely by surprise in the most magnificent way possible. I think, again, we can urge you all to go and seek out this fine Australian film. It's one of the best Australian films this year. You know, it's one of the best in the last few years, I think. Uh, A really impressive, interesting film. Check it out. Three Triple R. Love, Gaspar Noé. He's an Argentinian filmmaker based in France and I think pretty much established now as a modern provocateur. He likes to push the boundaries of cinema technically, narratively and stylistically. He takes delight in controversy by tackling all manners of taboos. And I guess a question I always wrestle with when I see his films is are we witnessing audacious boundary pushing or is this just novelty factor by a very naughty boy um this is his fourth film love i I haven't seen his very first film but um his second film irreversible i think is a masterpiece and enter the void his third film is a real sort of i better say guilty pleasure of mine but um it's just a film i adore it just took me to a whole new plane of spectatorship that had me mesmerized for days after i adore enter the void and now uh yeah he brings us love and 
there's always a sense of excitement and danger when going to see one of his films because you really do wonder what on earth am I about to be subjected to. In Love, the, the, the shtick, I suppose, is that the film contains graphic, unsimulated sex scenes and it's shot in 3D. And the film cuts straight to the chase when it begins. You've got a long shot of a couple mutually masturbating each other in you know, 3D and all, it's glory. This is how it begins. And I, I feel that love is something of a companion piece to Enter the Void. Both of the films are from the point of view of the young male protagonist who stars in each film. And, and in both cases, I would say that these, these two men are, are somewhat superficial and unpleasant dickheads. In Enter the Void, the protagonist has a head full of hallucinogenic drugs and very shallow ideas about reincarnation after hearing about the Tibetan Book of the Dead. So he spends most of the film imagining himself astral travelling and being reincarnated. When I think all that's happening in that film is he's, is he's dying. Um, and this, this scenario allowed Noe to deliver some really extraordinary psychedelic and dreamlike visuals that you know I found impossible to tear my eyes away from and, and empty my head of afterwards. In Love, our main character is a film school student named Oscar who is living with a woman he had an affair with and the baby's son that resulted from that affair. And he spends a lot of the film in flashback remembering much happier times with a previous girlfriend. Um, unfortunately for me, the result is a lot of self-indulgent moaning and moping and a lot of the promised 3D sex I found really lost its novelty value quite quickly and became dull. And I think that's the, that's the worst thing you can say about a Gaspar Noe film is there are stretches of it that are kind of dull and boring, which is something I never thought I'd say about one of his films. Nevertheless, this is stylistically striking. I mean, it's not quite as audacious as Into the Void in its use of first person, but, you know... There are shots evoking Stanley Kubrick's very careful composition and, and just the way every shot is framed has his otherworldly feel that is quite enticing. The editing in this film is, is sublime. He, he does his brief cuts to black and then back again and it creates these, these beats in the scene that often cover an unknown period of time, if any time has passed all, and it just creates the sensation of a film that he's taking a breath. It feels like a film. this film is a living thing. Um... And look, and some of the 3D sex is inventive. I mean, there are shots in this film, <laughs> quite literally shots, where you think, well, <laughs> that was bound uh, to, to, to happen. Um, you know, thank God I'm wearing my 3D glasses. Um, I'm going to move on. <laughs> if the... And I think this is the paradox of this film. If the intent was to convey the inner mind and worldview of Oscar as an essentially dislikable and shallow person by formally being that kind of film, then it is, you know, it's really highly successful. But I think it's a victim of its own success. Uh, it reminded me a bit of the response I had to The Bling Ring, which is also a film about very shallow, vacuous, materialistic characters. And the film kind of embodied the spirit of those characters and it ended up being a film that felt a little bit vacuous to, to experience. And I feel that with, with love. I kind of admire it for that, and I'm also very impatient with it for that. It's a film that is sort of... Also, I did enjoy more at the time, and, and over time I've lost a bit of love for it as each day goes by. But it's still, you know, a fascinating film by a very intriguing filmmaker. And you both have seen it far more recently than me, Cerise. You've chatted to the director. I'm dying to know what you both think. Yeah, I, I have very mixed feelings about this film because there's actually a lot of a lot in it that resonated with me on a, a quite visceral and definitely emotional level. Uh, 
I think the most profound things this film uh, grapples with is is trying to draw a distinction between physical love, the act of love making, and the more sensational elements of it, the more uh, revelatory, uh, but also the transcendental moments where you just lose yourself in someone else, and, and just trying to reconcile that with actual. Uh, that other sort of form of love, that one that we all that, that the movies wouldn't exist without um, that that love that somehow is supposed to bring two humans together and unite them in ways that just transcend the mundane. And I, I found, that, you know, because there are countless sex scenes in this film, and all of them, to me, actually not titillating. That it's not that you might. Some people are pitching this as sort of a 3D porno and that's mm. its novelty angle. Yes, there's a lot of very explicit sex in this film, but uh, I actually found it quite moving. Uh, those actual sex acts, what I, I struggled with more was, um, as you've said, Thomas, the, the protagonist is actually quite a bit of a dickhead, really. He's not very likeable. Um, but I guess that he is there as a, a surrogate for the, the filmmaker. I see a lot of Gaspar Noé in this film, not least because he's named half of the characters after his family and, and the, the child, the offspring of this unfortunate union, uh, uh, an infidelitous union, is named Gaspar. <laughs> the, the, um, he's, the character's name's Murphy, and yeah. I think Murphy's his mother's yes. surname, is and that right? His, well, yeah, or Nora first Murphy? name. Yes, mm. and, and she passed away a couple of years ago too, so I think there's a rawness in that. Uh, this, this film, uh, where, where, where I really struggled with this is, uh, yes, it is extremely self-indulgent. I don't have a problem with that in a way. In a way, this looks like the, the work of a, uh, a provocateur, but one who's extremely heteronormative. And uh, I grappled with issues surrounding any degree of queerness at all, which is not something unusual in his cinema. It's it, Irreversible starts uh, in a, a, a gay club called The Rectum, if I remember carefully, which is pitched as some sort of hell on earth before everything goes back to the Great Eden that was the um, the, uh, you know, the uh, bittersweet ending, to say the least, of, of Irreversible, or the beginning, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> Here, there's a, a transgender character who is presented as some sort of monster, something straight out of Gaspar Nye's id, uh, at its at its worst and best, you might say. I think it's extremely honest of him to include a character that I find as disgraceful as this this character is, who is just a, a stereotype taken from dreadful pornographic images of transgender people. And he's quite unapologetic about it, as emerged in this Q&A we had after uh, the film screening, which me, as a, a trans person, is a little challenging. But on the other hand, and in one way, I admire him for putting that out there and being true to himself. On the other hand, I think he's almost as big a dick as the protagonist in this mm. character. But he's honest, so I kind of respect that whilst being appalled by it, if you know what I mean. It's challenging. I think the film, I think he's, I mean, he's, his brand is that he's a challenging director. I think this is a lesser Gaspar Noé film, but I, I will always take a lesser Gaspar Noé film over a lot of other stuff because I think that um, even at his worst, and I wouldn't say that this is necessarily his quote-unquote worst, um, he's still trying to do something different. There is a genuine desire to, even if he's unsuccessful, he's genuinely intending to kind of push some kind of limits here, whether he's successful and whether there are problems linked with that is, as we can see, very much open for discussion. Uh, formally, though, I think that I, I agree with you. I actually found this a really... I mean, it's love lost. It's a really sad film. Yeah. Um, when we... Josh Nelson, our, our, our absent co-host, Josh Nelson, when we talked about this very briefly when, uh, when it screamed at MIF, Josh made a wonderful point that the, um, the use of 3D, these kind of flashback uh, sex scenes, that they're, they're, so, they're so powerful because... Um, 
they almost give you that idea of how we tend to have these kind of over-the-top sensationalized memories of the one that got away, you know, love lost, that it's this, it's too much, you know, this sense that we kind of hyperinflate the romance um, associated with lost love. And I think that that's exactly what goes on here. Uh, Benoit Deby is the cinematographer of this film and he worked with Noé on Enter the Void and Irreversible. He's without doubt one of my favourite cinematographers working at the moment. I've seen films that aren't great films that he's worked on that I adore simply for his input because he brings this kind of emotional impact to just light and colour. So films like uh, Ryan Gosling's Lost River, um, the Runaways film he was the DOP for. Oh, he also so did uh, Harmony Kareem's yeah. uh, The Neon Spring Breakers. Spring Breakers, which um, is a fabulous looking film. I, look, I, yeah. I don't like the film, but I love the film yeah. because of how it looks and how <clears> it feels. He's a really emotional cinematographer, if that makes sense, and he does it through this really intense use of colour. So I really like Love just for that just for Debbie's presence alone. Um, I, I mean, it, the, Noah's 51. There's been a lot said, you know, maybe maybe he's going through a midlife crisis. I mean, the, the, the production history of this film is very convoluted. He apparently wanted to make this uh, before he made a reversible, and he'd had uh, Vincent Cassell and Monica Bellucci lined up to make it, and there were some issues, and they ended up making this instead. He only finished shooting this film. He only finished shooting Love in October 2014, and it played in... Um, and it ended in February 15, and then it played in, in Cannes three months later. And mm. so, so many interviews that Gaspar Noé did, he was saying, you know, I was, do, I was doing 24-hour days on this, which is so weird when it's this project that goes back 15 years. There is a sense that it's kind of all over the shop. It doesn't feel finished. It doesn't feel well thought out. The um, Like like you, it's, like both of you, I don't really have a problem with, with it being self-indulgent. It's a Gaspar Noé film, of course, it's self-indulgent. But the kind of obvious, you know, the, the Murphy's a filmmaker, so the, the heavy, I mean, the soundtrack, you know, there's... Um, a John Carpenter, the music from Assault from Precinct, Thir- Precinct 13, Dario Argento's Deep Red, just throwing in another Dario Argento <laughs> reference <laughs> yeah. there. You're uh, always welcome. But during the, the sex scene's a bit different to yes, a, a lullaby yes. during a, a primal scene. Well, there's the, the, the kind of music from um, Cannibal Holocaust. Um, that's used in a really interesting way in this film. But even the movie posters that, yeah. that are in there, it's like a it's just a bit obvious. It's, yeah, especially you know, 2001 that comes yeah, up in like these we, films we get all it. the time. We get it. You See, know, the I, Pasolini I, I, and... It's like, oh, you really like Sello? Really? Who, who would have known that? But again, I think that was the character being a fairly superficial, basic guy. You know, he's a film student and his points of reference are so painfully yeah. obvious and yep. boring and conventional. Um, I think it's part of the fun. It's a, it's a really unwieldy beast of a film, and, and maybe that's my issue. I, I just wanted to see a more complete, better edited, better focused work. There were too many stretches where I was just really bored. I wasn't offended by it like some people. I mean, I saw no, it in screening with people, you know, howling in anger and fury. And it's that classic thing where people mix up the intent of the film with the intent of the director. Although in this case, maybe it's fair enough to get those two things confused. But well, he's egging it on. I mean, he's he, consciously yeah, he's quite deliberately that. doing that. He would have been delighted. I and think. I wonder if people go to a Gaspar Noé film precisely to have that moment of outrage. You know, they go to be outraged. You yeah, know, that kind possibly. of post irreversible. I'm going to see. A, I'm going to see a Gaspar Noé film, and and it's going to be. It's going to appall me. <laughs> Yeah, I have very mixed feelings about this mm. film. But it really emotionally resonated. It continues to. That that real sense of loss uh, expressed just through physical... Uh, just through bodies writhing about in bliss. Um, 
Yeah. And it's, it's nice uh, that it's nice to give presence and form to an aspect of relationships that often doesn't get shown on the screen. And that's that's the sexual union. I mean, especially early in relationships, that aspect is a really big deal. I mean, I think Michael Winterbottom tried to do a similar thing in Nine Songs, which I actually quite like that film, but for a lot of people it was a failed experiment. I think Love is doing the same sort of thing because at its core it's a really conventional romance story. Boy meets girl, yeah, boy loses is. girl, boy mopes a lot. Um, I'm glad the film's out there, though. You know, and, you know, and, and it's great that it's getting a small theatrical run now as well. I, I, I would, for, for those of you very bold and, and daring and up for a challenge, or if you just want to be outraged because we live in an age where we love getting outraged, go and <laughs> check out Love. Tonight on Plato's Cave, we spoke about a pigeon sat on a branch reflecting on existence. That's screening at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, courtesy of Madman Entertainment. We also took a look at The Dressmaker. That's on general release through Universal Pictures. And Love is screening at the Lido Cinemas, courtesy of Exile Entertainment and Bounty Entertainment. This is Plato's Cave. You have been listening to myself, Thomas Cordwell, with Cerise Howard and Alexandra Helen Nicholas. Good night. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.